0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 17. Hear now the word of our God from Psalm 17. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Saviour, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. You, Psalm 17 is a prayer of David. Why, why does it matter that you read Psalm 17 as a prayer of David? Well, there's a story told of a man who only read the Bible for what it would say to him, and so he he opened his Bible, and his eyes fell on the passage that said, Judas went out and hanged himself. And he was like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? So he closed his Bible again, opened it up, up, and came to the verse, go and do thou likewise. If you just take your situation as the only context in which you read the Bible, then you'll wind up not knowing what to do with it. And that's why, as we saw last week from Acts 2, when Peter says that we need to read Psalm 16 in the light of Jesus, it's because Peter had learned from the Psalms to read the Psalms in the light of David and Israel. And then he saw, oh, and Jesus is the son of David who fulfills all of these Psalms All Israel sings these songs in fellowship with David, and so the church sings these songs in fellowship with Jesus. And and that means that Jesus sang these songs first. It's not just that he sings them with you, it's rather he sang them first. He lived them first. If you just think about the last few psalms we've been through, in, in Psalm 11, Jesus sang about the violence of the wicked as they came to arrest him. In Psalm 12, he sang about the lies and slander and how nobody shows steadfast love anymore. His own friends and disciples abandoned him. He sang Psalm 13 when he asked his father, will you forget me forever as he hung upon the cross? In Psalm 14, Jesus sang about how Jew and Gentile alike have turned aside as the leaders of Rome and Jerusalem conspired against him. In Psalm 15, he described himself as the one faithful and righteous man who now sits at the right hand of the Father, Psalm 16. Jesus is the singer of the Psalms, who has united us to himself, and that's how they connect to us. And that's going to be really helpful for us as we come to Psalm 17, because Psalm 17 gives voice to the frustration and agony of life in a world where the innocent suffer where we frequently experience the pain that comes from other people sinning against us. If you read Psalm 17 without Jesus, you might wind up with something like, I alone am innocent, everyone else around me is an idiot. Which, okay, don't, don't we all have moments when we tend to think that way? But if you read Psalm 17 with Jesus singing it first, Then he's the innocent one who suffered because of what I did, who suffered because he's the innocent one and all we like sheep have gone astray. Our New Testament lesson comes from Hebrews chapter 5. We'll start it just at the end of chapter 4. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. But was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, Hebrews says, was the the innocent one. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He learned obedience from what he suffered and thus was made perfect. He was already sinless, but he wasn't perfect yet. You see, there's a difference between sinless and perfect. What, what was Jesus lacking in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest? He hadn't suffered. He, he, sort of, In order to be made perfect, he had to pass through suffering. That Without that, he could not be a perfect high priest, He had to learn obedience from what he suffered, and thus he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Really, this is at the heart of what Psalm 17 is all about. Uh, Psalm 17 actually brings together kind of all the themes that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Psalm 11 had opened with the theme of taking refuge in the Lord when the violent and the wicked are destroying the foundations of society. Well, The very language of Psalm 11 is taken up in verses 4 and 7 and 9 here in Psalm 17. Psalm 12 had spoken of how the faithful have vanished from the sons of Adam, the sons of man, and had particularly focused on the sins of the tongue, which is the theme in verse 10 here. Psalm 13 was the song of the depressed, those who wonder how long God will allow these things to continue. And in Psalm 17, David still pleads with God to answer, attend to my cry. Psalm 14 showed us the path of the fool, those who have become corrupt, those who would shame the plans of the poor. Psalm 17 now describes those same fools seeking to ambush and devour. Psalm 15 showed us the path of the righteous, the one who dwells on God's holy hill. And as we heard last time in Psalm 16, the reason why we can endure through these trials is because God has promised a glorious inheritance, the inheritance that has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. And Psalm 17 says that this inheritance, this portion, this, I will be satisfied with your likeness. This inheritance is already ours in the resurrection of Jesus, that because Jesus has been raised from the dead and because I have taken refuge in the Lord, therefore I am righteous in his sight. Uh, Verse 1 and verse 15 open and close the psalm with the same word. It's translated differently, just cause in verse 1 and righteousness in verse 15, but it's it's the same word. Psalm 17 moves from the plea for vindication, hear righteousness, O Lord, to the confident statement that I will behold God's face in righteousness. In the same way, verse 2 opens with an appeal to God's face, the phrase, from your presence, is from your face let vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. And then at the end of the psalm, in verse 15, I shall behold your face in righteousness. The whole psalm is is all about how will I, remember Psalm 15, who will ascend the hill of the Lord, who will dwell in his holy place? Psalm 16, that Jesus is the one who is the son of David who inherits everything. But now, I, in Jesus, behold your face. When I shall behold your face in righteousness, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Because Psalm 17 is the prayer of the innocent. And I realize, you know, in a Calvinist church, you don't really expect to hear the pastor say that people can be innocent. But it's true. Let me just ask you, did King David, well, before he was king, did David deserve to be persecuted by Saul? What had David done? No. Or did Tamar deserve to be raped by her half-brother Amnon? Of course not. So, okay, there are times when you're innocent. And... It's partly why the ESV translates Tzedek as a just cause in verse 1. Hear a just cause. And part of it is the translators are taking the view that David is making a particular claim about a particular case. This just cause. But it's important to recognize that David's doing something more. He's not just saying, in this particular case I'm innocent. David is claiming to be righteous before God. Hear righteousness, O Lord. Sometimes people wonder, how could David say this after the whole Bathsheba episode? So some would say, oh, he must have written it before then. Uh, That won't work. Psalm 17 was put in the book of Psalms way after the Bathsheba episode. Whenever David wrote, it doesn't matter. By the time Psalm 17 was sung in the temple as a prayer of David, everybody knew David's whole life story. So, what does it mean to sing Psalm 17? Well, it's, it's because Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 16. He is the one who sits at God's hand forever that we, with David and with Jesus, can sing Psalm 17. Because no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, remember David? We got the whole Bathsheba episode, Uriah, adultery, murder, all this going on. No matter what you've done, you can become innocent again. I once knew a woman who had made a lot of bad decisions in her youth. So when her husband sinned horrifically against her, she felt she couldn't say anything because I deserved it. That's not the way God's justice works. Just because you have sinned does not give someone else the right to sin against you. It works the other way too. Just because somebody else sinned against you doesn't mean you have the right to sin against them. David's point in Psalm 17 is that before God, I am innocent. I am righteous before God. And and watch how David does this. You see it in verses 3 through 5. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night, you have tested me, and you will find nothing. Whew. Wow, really? I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Notice notice the way this works. He start he starts with the heart in verse three. My heart is innocent. Then he says, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress, his words are innocent. And then he says that his feet have not slipped. Verse 5, my steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. And notice verse 4, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. In heart, in speech, and behavior, David says, I am innocent before God. How has he done this? How has he avoided the ways of the violent? By the word of your lips. David has listened to the word of God, and his steps have held fast to your paths. When we listen to what God says, and when we walk in his paths, then our feet do not slip. Now, of course, at this point, we want to say, but well, what about Uriah the Hittite? David says, I have avoided the ways of the violent, but David sent Uriah the Hittite to his death, all because he's trying to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. What does he mean, my feet have not slipped? It's it's not enough to say, well, he's just talking about a different case. Because David's point isn't, oh, render a, a favorable verdict in this one particular case. That's why, where does the psalm end? I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. David is talking about his eternal destiny. He's talking about where he's going at the end of his life when he dies and what's going to happen. To him. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Because what David is doing, he's he's declaring that he is innocent, that he is in the right, but his confidence does not rest upon his own righteousness. His confidence rests upon the faithfulness of God to God's own promises. Notice how he does this in verses 6 through 9. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. I have listened to your words and ordered my life upon them. Now please listen to my words as you have promised. Wondrously show your steadfast love, verse 7. Your chesed, your covenant loyalty, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David asks God to show chesed, to show steadfast love. Why? Because God has promised. Cressid is this idea of steadfast love, covenant loyalty, being faithful to people that you are bound to. And so when David says, show your steadfast love, he's saying, oh God, you promised that my son would sit on my throne forever. So do what you've promised. David is not here talking about how does God justify the ungodly. This is not the question of how does a sinner become right with God. This is the question of how does God deal with his own people, those who already belong to him? The Westminster Confession talks about this in chapter 16 when it speaks of good works. That, and with respect to the ungodly, it says, we cannot, by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come. And the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by our works we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all that we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because, as our works are good, they proceed from his spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. So when it comes to the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life, our best works fall far short of God's standard. If God were to judge us based on our own works, we would be doomed. But then in the next section, the the confession addresses the situation of Psalm 17. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted in Christ, their good works also are accepted in him not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. When God justifies you in Christ, he also justifies your works. He not only declares you righteous in his sight and accepts you in Jesus, he also declares your good works righteous in his sight. He accepts your works, imperfect as they are, and rewards them according to what Jesus deserves. That's exactly what David's talking about. From your presence, from your face, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right that He, looking upon them in his Son. Look at me according to your steadfast love. Deal with me according to your covenant faithfulness. And then think back to verses 3 to 5. David had said that his heart, his speech, and his behavior was innocent. Why was he so confident? Because by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent, and my steps have held fast to your paths. David understands his righteousness comes from God. He avoids the ways of the violent because of God's words. David's steps do not slip because he walks in God's paths. Left to himself, David would not be innocent. How can David, a murderer and adulterer, sing Psalm 17? He's not just saying, ah, I'm forgiven. He is forgiven. But God is not just in the business of forgiving you and then sort of sending you back out to your misery. and God is also intent on making your righteousness shine. And so David begs God to protect him. Keep me as the apple of your eye. The pupil of your eye is the most well-protected part of your body. It's, yeah. Do you know how hard it is for anything to get at your eye? It's a well-protected part. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David may have been a mighty king, but he realizes that he is frail and weak before the power of his foes. David can only survive if God protects him and if God subdues his enemies. And That's where he goes, and then in verses 10 to 13. And and notice that the enemies are described in verses 10 through 12 with the same threefold pattern, heart, speech, and behavior, as David had used in the verses 3 to 5. The difference is the wicked close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly, and they now have surrounded our steps. Behavior always starts in the heart, moves out into words, and then takes shape in action. Indeed, when you think about this, it can be useful to think about. Because if all sin starts in the heart, moves out into word, and takes shape in action, well then, when you're thinking about where you're struggling, follow the pattern backwards. If you want to understand where sin comes from in your life, okay, look at the action. What were the words behind it? What were the lies that you believed? What were the words you told yourself? And behind the words, what was in your heart? What was the craving? What was the desire? What was the longing that convinced you to turn aside? Notice how it works for David's foes. They close their hearts to pity. Uh, The image in Hebrew is fat has covered their heart. The, The picture is that They are so obsessed with wealth and power. They are so obsessed with their desires that they are insensitive to others. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. When you hear arrogant words, you see the fruit of hearts that are closed to pity. And the result is action. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. And so David pleads with God. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Because only God can save. David was a man after God's own heart, but because of that, David recognizes that he needs the Lord to take down his foes. And so he says, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Think about the picture there. If you are focused on getting what you want, you may succeed at obtaining power and wealth in this life. David says, you, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They, they leave their abundance to their infants. The wicked may succeed at collecting all this stuff and handing it down to their, to their children and grandchildren. But David says, a portion in this life is not what he seeks He is not satisfied with handing down an inheritance to his children. Psalm 16 had said that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Psalm 16 had said that fullness of joy comes in your presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17 develops this theme. Their portion is in this life. They are satisfied with having children and passing on an inheritance. David says, and remember, this is the same David who God had said, I will set your son on your throne. But David says, what's the thing that I care about? What's the thing that I long? I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What is it that satisfies you? David says, that he will behold God's face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Last time we heard Peter say in Acts 2 that Psalm 16 was all about the resurrection of Christ. And since Psalm 17 develops that same point further, we need to see that if David's song in Psalm 16 pointed to Christ as the one who did not see corruption, then David's song in Psalm 17 shows us Christ. As the innocent sufferer, because Jesus is truly the one who was rescued from death by the Father. Hebrews 5 says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He who was in the beginning with the Father took our flesh upon himself so that he might take upon himself the sins of the world, so that he might take upon himself the innocent suffering of the world. C.S. Lewis says it well when he says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. An infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We were created for God himself, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. For those who are married, you, you probably wake up most mornings next to your wife or husband, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing. It was designed by God to be a, a faint picture of the real thing, waking up to be satisfied with his likeness. The last few weeks of Rolf Kaler's life. Uh, He he was an elder here who had been a bachelor his entire life. He had woken up alone for more than 60 years. While he was dying, we made a point. We always had somebody sitting in the room with him. So every morning, and for that matter, he, he was in that point of life when he was waking up several times in the night, several times in the day. Every time he woke up, every time he opened his eyes, there was someone in the room who, whom he loved, who loved him. My favorite moment was when one, a young man he didn't know very well was there. And, and he, 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 Rolf woke up and looked at him a little puzzled and was like, who are you? And he said, Michael, are you here to take me to Jesus? And Michael said, yes. Not, not, Michael told me later, I didn't know what else to say, so I said yes. Rolf fell asleep again, woke up a little later, then actually recognized him and they had a good laugh. But, this is where what is it that these pictures we have of that glimpses of, I will be satisfied with his likeness. You know, because then one last time, Rolf closed his eyes and when he opened them again, he saw Jesus. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That is where the story is going. That is what our hope is. That it's, it's not that, oh, we'll do okay for ourselves in this life. This is David talking. His son is going to sit on his throne. And David sees that's a dead-end road. That's just earthly, earthly inheritances don't satisfy. David sees, this only ends well if, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us, because we need you, and we need your grace and mercy Strengthen us, we pray, and grant us eyes to see Jesus and ears to hear what he is saying and hearts that love you and love one another for Jesus' sake. Amen.